Has anyone ever heard of a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually has a statue on the outside of Westminster Abbey. He's considered a modern Christian hero. And he was German. He lived in Berlin during the Second World War. And he was captured by the Nazis for, among other things, running an underground seminary and also being involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He came from an aristocratic family. He was extremely well-educated. By the time he was uh, 23, he'd completed his doctorate. He had a, a role of professor at Berlin University, and he, was, he went to America to lecture. And he was very accomplished um, and had an incredibly bright future academically and professionally. And all of a sudden, in his late 30s, he's captured by the, the Nazis, and he's put in prison. And he would never leave prison. He was executed a week before the war ended, a week before the, the Allies liberated the concentration camp where he was held. And the topic I'm, I'm going to talk about tonight is identity. And Bonhoeffer wrote a poem in prison in the last year of his life, and it was called, Who Am I? And I'm going to start by reading this poem. Who am I? They often say I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often say I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, as one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness? Trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation. Powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance. Tossing an expectation of great events. Weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all? Who am I? Am I this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? 
Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Imagine Bonhoeffer, an aristocratic, highly educated, extremely gifted as a leader, stuck in a tiny cell writing those words. Every single thing that had defined him as a man, as a leader in society, stripped away. I want to talk about our identity in Christ. And I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke. And we're going to focus on chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Now this passage is uh, very familiar. This is the, the, the account of Jesus' temptation in the desert. Like I say, it's a very familiar passage, but I don't think it's often linked to the topic of identity. We often talk about it in terms of uh, Temptation, obviously, and, and withstanding temptation. But really, when you read this in context, there's a huge element of it that's to do with identity. Now, the reason I say that is when you read the book of Luke, the first three chapters are all about Luke describing the preparation for Jesus' coming, about letting his readers know exactly who Jesus is. By the end of those first three chapters, there's no doubt of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah. He's both the son of God and he's the son of David. He's the, the, the prophesied, promised Messiah who was going to come and save God's people. And so we get all that in the first three chapters. And all the way through the book, actually, this this idea of identity keeps coming back again and again. Again and again, Jesus is, is challenged on who he is. When he goes home uh, to, to Nazareth, where he grew up, people are challenging, isn't this just Joseph's son? When he goes uh, and, and teaches with the disciples, he asks them, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter cries out, you are the Messiah. And even all the way up until the end of the book, when Jesus is on trial, when he's before the, the, the Jewish leadership, they ask him, are you the promised one? Are you the son of God? When he's before Pilate, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? All the way through, there's this ringing question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? But right in the immediate context of where we're going to be reading from in chapter 4, we get this idea of Jesus' identity zoomed in on. So in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we have Jesus' baptism. And it says, Jesus had also been baptized and was praying. And while he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father identifying Jesus 
You are my son, and with you I am well pleased. And straight after that, we get a genealogy of Jesus' family history. We get a, a, a list, a long list, and if you're anything like me, this is the, these are the kind of bits that you just kind of skip over. You know, it's a hundred names I can't pronounce. Why is it there? What, what is the point of it being there? And the reason is, genealogies, family trees, if you've ever had a family tree or seen one, the whole point is marking out who are we? Who are you told through the history of who came before you? Son of, who was the son of this, the son of that, the son of... And with Jesus, we get his family line all the way back to Adam. And so... God the Father tells us, this is Jesus, this is my beloved Son. And then right after, we get this long list telling us exactly who he's he's from in, in the human sense. And through that line, we get King David. And this is Luke saying, he's the Son of God, and he's also the Messiah. He's the Son of David, the one coming to bring salvation to the people. And then we get to chapter 4, which is where we're reading from. So you keep that all in mind as we read this. We'll read from verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he he, he departed from him until another opportune time. So when you read that in the context of where it is, it's very hard to get away from this question of identity. It's the very thing that that the devil goes right in at Jesus about. And so what I want to look at tonight is um, the following three points. I want to look at the nature of identity. I want to look at the choice of identity, and the fight for identity. So first of all, the nature of identity. When you think about identity, identity is something that is given to you. It's something that has to be conferred. It has to come from something else. That's why parents give names to their children and groups give names to their members. Writers give names to their characters but it always comes from somewhere else. And what they are, they're definitions of what make a thing what it is. And that's true for all 
finite things. You know the word infinite? We understand what infinite is. The opposite of infinite is finite. Limited things. Every limited thing has to get its identity from outside of itself. A limited thing can't define itself because every limited thing comes from another thing. When you've got limits, you have to be differentiated from other limited things. And so we use all different sorts of ways to identify ourselves apart from other things. That's what our names are about. That's what our uh, family histories are about. And that's why it's a myth that there could be any such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing as a truly self-made man. Even though that's what all our heroes and people we look up to, that's what we tend to think of them as, self-made men and women. But in reality, there's no such thing. Only God can define himself by himself. Only God can identify himself by himself. That's why when Moses asks, who are you, Lord? God simply responds, I am that I am. I am. I need no other thing to define me. I need no other thing to identify who I am because I am in myself. But we as creations can only be defined by him. We can only be defined by things outside of ourselves. And ultimately, we can only be identified by our creator. That's why one way of thinking about sin is that the root of sin is our attempt to define ourselves, to root our identity in anything other than God. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a philosopher, wrote a book called The Sickness Unto Death. And he's talking about what is sin. And he says that the real sickness unto death is when we try to base who we are on anything but God. Because God is the source of life. God is the source of being. And so if you disconnect yourself from that, what else can there be but death? And that's the essence of sin. If we define ourselves by any other thing, we end up removing any foundation for meaning and for life. That's the race that we've been born into. That's the human condition in a nutshell. A race of people that define ourselves or attempt to define ourselves apart from our creator. You know, um, you, you may have heard of this story. The Greeks had a story called Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex. Freud talked about it a lot, but I'm not going to go there. Oedipus Rex, he proclaimed himself to be a self-made man. He says, I have no father and mother, and therefore all of my glory belongs to me. I'm the only one that I need to, to thank for who I am. And if you know the story, he ends up meeting his father on the road and having an argument, but he doesn't know it's his father and he kills him. And he ends up meeting a woman. He doesn't know it's his mother. He ends up marrying his mother. And, and when he finds out all this stuff, his, his whole life falls apart and he, and he, he blinds himself. And so in other words, this, this bold claim that I have no, I have no one before me, it leads to his destruction because of his blindness, because of his pride. And I think it's a really good illustration of the danger, you know, pride comes before fall, the danger 
of human pride. When we disconnect ourselves from God, the consequence is death. And that's why in the 1800s, Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. And you know why? It's because of that pride. So the nature of identity is a finite thing, a limited thing can only define itself by other things. And yet we try to identify ourselves just by ourselves. But only God can do that. So that's just thinking about identity. The second thing is our choice of identity. Now, just before that passage, there was the genealogy of Jesus. And it's important that the last person it mentions is is Adam. It ends up, it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does it talk about Adam? Usually, genealogies didn't do that. They didn't go that far back. Why does he take it all the way back to Adam? And why does it call Adam the son of God? We've already called Jesus the son of God. Why is he bringing out these two potential sons of God? The reason is, all of us, all of humanity is either basing its identity on Adam, or it's basing its identity on the new Adam, which is Christ, which is Jesus. Adam was our representative. Adam was the first son of God who was tested and failed. And because we're in his family line, that's why we are separated from God. So Adam was the head of humanity. He was the son of God who was tested and failed. And thus, he passes on that failure, that disgrace, to everybody that's in his family line. And that's passed down on through the ages. But Jesus is called the new Adam. Jesus is the head of a new humanity. And he was God's son who was tested but passed the test. And now anyone that's in his family line gets to share in his blessings, gets to share in his honor. And that's passed on to all of his descendants. So the way, like I said, everyone's either based on they're in Adam's family or they're in Jesus's family. The way you become part of Adam's family is you, you, you get born. That's it. That's all you got to do. The only way that you become part of Jesus' family is also to be born, born a second time. And when you're born the second time, you're adopted into his family. It's like a, one way to think about it is like it's a change on your birth certificate. You go from being son of Adam to being son of God through Jesus. And that's the true basis of Christianity. You know, we use this term Christian, but actually, probably a better way to understand, we're not going to get away from using the word Christian now, we've been doing it for 2,000 years, but a better way to actually understand the way the Bible talks about Christianity is to be in Christ. To be in Christ is actually more accurate than, than just the word Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The, word, the, the phrase in Christ, talking about believers, is used over 200 times. Why is that? Maybe it's more accurate to describe the condition that a true Christian is in. What determines whether you're a Christian or not is whether you're in Christ. It's not simply believing certain things or having gotten a certain experience or living a certain way, but the real question is, are you in him? Are you part of his family line? It's about our identity. 
That's what's at the root of it all. Are you in the king's line? Are you in the king's family? Not just do you know certain facts about the king. That's great. It's not just have you had certain experiences with the king or do you just live in a kingly way? The question is, are you in the king? Are you part of the king? Are you rooted in his identity? And that's the true basis of what it means to be a Christian. The reason I'm talking about this uh, is, you know, a lot of people, they'll have their identity as a Christian based in one of those other things. Either they'll have it based in, I believe certain things, or I've had certain feelings or experiences, or I live a certain way. But the problem is, when something comes and challenges one of those things, maybe you find out something you believed wasn't right, or maybe you feel depressed and God doesn't feel close and you don't have that feeling anymore, or maybe you mess up. All of a sudden, your foundation, your basis for calling yourself a Christian is taken away. And now you don't know if you are a Christian or not. The reality is, none of those things is the real foundation. They come out of who you are rather than making who you are. When you're in Christ, the most natural thing in the world is for your thinking to change. The most natural thing in the world is for your feelings and your actions to change. But just changing those things doesn't put you in Christ. It's the other way around. It comes out of who you are. And if you're rooted in him, if, you're, if your identity is in him, then nothing can shake that. No challenge in your thinking and your feeling and your doing can change who you are in him. How can you be identified with him? How can you be in him? Well, it's only through faith. And what that means is turning away from every other possible thing that you could identify yourself in and turning to him. And putting it all on him. Putting every hope, every sense of value and worth in the fact that you are his. And that's a continual turning away from everything else and looking to him. It's a life lived looking to him as your only sense, uh, source of, of, of identity. And I want to run over, okay, so what does it mean then? What, what's the significance of being in him? What does it mean for the person that's in Christ? The Bible is filled with promises that belong to those that are in Christ. If I really wanted to cover all that, we'd have to read the whole Bible. So I just want to look at two incredible passages. We're just going to read them. Romans 8, 15 to 17, which says... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, it, it's, it's not this, you know, pop band. Abba is Aramaic. It means dad. You get the right to say dad, daddy. Like a little kid says to their to their loving father. And it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you're a child of God, you are an heir. You're a son. You're, you're the one 
You're one of the ones to whom God's inheritance is going to come. Think about that. People kill over inheritances. What if you got God's inheritance? How rich is God? And yet he says, if you're my son, and it talks about sons because sons are the ones that would get the inheritance back in those days. So it's not just only men. It just means you get the place of honor. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this says we have, through God's love, he's chosen us since before time began. He's chosen you to be adopted as a son before time began. It says we've been redeemed. He's he's, he's bought us out of the slavery that we were in. That's what redemption is. He's bought you out of slavery. It says we're forgiven and we're united to him. And that we have an inheritance which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. I won't read it all, but it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. He says his riches are immeasurable. It's not possible to measure the riches that God wants to give us. We can't even think of that. You think it's just, it's just exaggeration. It's just hyperbole. No, this is talking about an eternity of God's blessing. And it says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. When Jesus was resurrected, he ascended and he sat at God's right hand, which is the, the place of power and authority. And this says, you, we can't even wrap our minds around this. This says we're there with him. If we're in him, it means we're seated at God's right hand in Jesus. Whoa, I, I can't do that justice. <laughs> God's riches and his promises for you and for me are beyond our understanding. They're beyond what we can comprehend. And the amazing thing is, it says, he did all that even when we were dead and wanted nothing to do with him. When we were so locked in sin that we were blind and we couldn't see and we didn't want anything to do with God, this is what he gave to us and said, come to me by faith and all of this can be yours. 
And because we're in Jesus, it means all of his riches are given to us. And we're seated with him in the, in the heavenly places. And the amazing thing is that it's absolutely guaranteed for the sons of God, for the, for, the, for the people that God says, you are my children. That's not everybody, by the way. These are the people that come to him by faith. It's absolutely guaranteed. Why? Because Jesus did it for us. And because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit that says, I will bring this to completion. I will fulfill the promise. So that's just a, a tiny picture to just let you in on how incredible this thing is. We don't have time to get into unpacking what those things mean. But I hope that's given you just a glimpse of how incredible the promise is. Just what's offered to you. But it's really easy to know all that. And, you know, the reason I'm preaching about this is because I really struggle with this. I find this really hard. I can know all this stuff about what God promises to me, but it's a lot harder to live it out, to live as if you really believe it. And so the last thing, the third point here is the fight for identity. And here's where we're going to go back to Luke 4. Because the first thing we read here is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're a Christian, God has given you the Holy Spirit. We have the same spirit as followers and disciples of Jesus. We operate in the same spirit that this verse says Jesus operated in. Now, Jesus was, he was both fully God and fully man, but in his humanity, the Holy Spirit strengthened him. And so we, we don't have to look at this as just some impossible ideal of, of what only Jesus could do. No, we've been given the same spirit. And so we can learn from Jesus' example here. So verse 1 there tells us we have the same spirit. The other thing it tells us right from verse 1 is, expect to be tempted. <laughs> if you're a child of God, that does no, in no way exempt you from going through temptation. You know the word temptation? It, it can also be translated test. Temptation, testing. If you're a child of God, expect to be tested. A lot of times we think that when we're going through that moment, it's, it's, it's because God's, God's not happy with us, you know? So that's why, we're going, that's why we're in this place. That's why we're in the desert. Because God's not happy with us. And God's testing us because he's not happy with us and he wants to punish us somehow. But think about who's here in the desert. This is Jesus Christ. God himself in the flesh, whom, the, whom just in, in the previous chapter, God said, you are my beloved son. And beloved is, is it's agape, it's unconditional love of God. That's what that word beloved is. You are my son who I love unconditionally and with whom I'm well pleased. And then the very next thing that happens is he's in the desert and he's being tempted by the devil himself. So next time you're in the desert being tempted... Don't think it's because God's angry at you. Expect it to come. If it came to Jesus, of course it's going to come to us. It's not a sign of disapproval. In fact, it's God's plan to, to test us and, and take us to and prepare us for our mission. 
which is the very next thing that happens. After Jesus is tempted, he sets off on his mission. The second thing we can learn is to recognize when temptation is most likely. Verse 2, it says, he'd been there for 40 days, he'd eaten nothing, he was hungry, and I imagine he was pretty tired. There's common denominators that we can pick up here of when to expect temptation. This isn't the only time that temptation is going to come, and yet these are things that a lot of times when temptation does come, these factors are present as well. Usually, it happens that after an incredible, affirming, uplifting, wonderful weekend, Monday comes, and you're at your weakest. I don't know how many people I've seen come through the door, and maybe on it's a Cumbre weekend or something, and they'll have the time of their life. And they'll come up and they'll give God praise and glory and worship and, and they'll be absolutely ecstatic, ecstatic. And Monday, rubber hits the road and they're gone. Temptation tends to come right after you've had one of those mountaintop amazing times. <laughs> and you're on, the, you're on the come down. There's always a come down. So expect it. When you're on the mountaintop, expect, okay, tomorrow... It's going to be tough. I know that the enemy's going to try and get me tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, something that Selena's taught me uh, is that there, there's only one willpower tank. You've only got so much willpower. And so the devil's going to try and hit you when your willpower is depleted. And your willpower is depleted when you're, when you're tired, when you've been using all of your will to carry on working. You're tired, and, you're, and maybe you're hungry. Your body's tired from lack of fuel. And that makes you more susceptible to giving in. And I know for me, the areas that I struggle in, I'm I'm very much more, I mean, for instance, like anger. You're very much more tempted to burst out into anger when you're tired and when you're hungry. For me, it's, you know, any morning, therefore. (laughs) Any given morning, I'm tired and I'm hungry. Therefore, I might just snap at you. The other thing is, Jesus... Another, another time to expect temptation is you're hungry, you're tired, and you're alone. Jesus is alone in the desert. It's good to spend time in solitude. Don't get me wrong. Jesus spent a lot of time alone praying. That's, that is a good thing. But you also have to realize that that's when you're, when you're alone, you're most open to attack as well. Because in, in the presence of other people, we're, you know, we're built up. That's the good thing about community. But when we're alone, we're most open to attack. And so remember those things. This, I mean, this can be really practical. Remember, if, if you know you're going to be tired, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be alone, it, you may just be tempted in that moment. That applies to wherever it is that you struggle. And you can probably relate to that. I certainly can. And so that's, that's number two. Expect temptation, recognize when to expect temptation. And then verse 3 gets into the enemy's plan. We can know part of the way that the enemy tries to get us through what he does here. And it's interesting, he goes right in for our identity. He makes us question our identity in God. The, The first thing he says to Jesus here, if, if you're really the son of God, If you are, 
turn this stone to bread. He's going to come after our identity. And whatever's true for Jesus is true for us too. When you look at the, the plan here, the, the, the plan of attack that Satan takes, it's progressively more subtle. It's progressively more sneaky. So first off, he starts with our physical desires. And the plan is to try and get us to put our physical needs and desires above God. Why don't you just take that little bit? You know, you're hungry. There's nothing wrong with eating. Why don't you manipulate the power of God to serve your desires? That's the first attack. And Jesus' response, man can't live on bread alone, but only on, and the rest of that verse is only on the word of God. So he starts off with our desires, but then he goes into, and this is more subtle, he goes into our plans. He says to Jesus, I'll give you all this authority. I'll give you the whole world if, if you worship me. Now, I think this is about tempting us to put our methods above God's methods. It's very subtle because, of course, Jesus had come to rule the world. He came to be king, right? And he knew that to get to there, there was a, there was a long and there was a hard road. And so Satan says, let me give you the easy road. Let me give you the, the, the shortcut to where God wants to take you. The problem is the shortcut bypasses all the work that God needs to do in the meantime to prepare us for that place. And so the shortcut ends up destroying us. But it's interesting. Maybe God's promised you something. And you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it. And you're frustrated that it's not coming. You're frustrated because God's way of doing things doesn't seem to be working, doesn't seem to be going fast enough. And there's that little temptation there. Let me take the easy road. Let me take the, the, the shortcut. And so the end is a good thing. But the temptation is to put your methods, your plans, your way of doing things above God, above his plans and his infinite wisdom. And then verse 9, he says, again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Because it says he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And the third method he, he's trying to get us is to make us demand proof from God. To make us test God. Um, and even to, to twist scripture to our own benefit. Now this is, this is almost further down the line. Because it's... it's, it's Incredibly sneaky. Satan is quoting the Bible to Jesus. The Bible's true, right? Isn't all the Bible true? How can the devil use the Bible against me? When you twist it to satisfy what you want, what you just really want for yourself, and you twist the Bible, you take things out of context to just suit what you already wanted in the first place. That's incredibly dangerous. You know, actually, the, the devil... Uh, he leaves out a few words here, which is interesting. Psalm 9, that's taken from. It says, he will guard you in all your ways. So it's talking about your whole life. God will be with you in your whole life. It's not talking about whenever you feel like jumping off a building, God's going to catch you. And we do that all the time. Where that, that temptation is there all the time. I really want this thing to happen. Uh, you know, 
Oh. God promised that to me. There you go. Completely out of context. And it's really just fitting what I wanted in the first place. That's actually a demonic tactic. That's a little scary. Be careful of that. Of twisting the scripture to just fit what you want it to say. The last thing, so that's about knowing the enemy's plan. But then, what can we learn here about how to fight back? What can we learn from Jesus and the way he responds and how we can fight back against these kinds of temptations? Well, the first thing is, you'll notice, for every temptation, how does Jesus respond with scripture? Every time. Jesus used the same tools. He had the same spirit within him, and he used the same tool that we have to fight temptation. He didn't use some secret magic potion. He used the same Bible that we have to fight back the temptation. Jesus knew. So how do you fight back? you got to know the Bible. You have to know the truth to fight off the lie. You have to recognize the real thing to be able to tell a fake. And Jesus, he didn't only know the scripture, he understood it. He learned from the example of scripture. All the, all the, um, all the responses that he makes, they're all from Deuteronomy uh, 6 and 8. They're all from Deuteronomy, which is, which is the time when Israel was being tested in the desert and they were testing God. Jesus learned from the example of Israel that he did not have to test God, that he could trust God. And he also knew that that time was not because of God's disapproval, but it was for God's testing. And so he knew the scripture, he understood it, and he learned from it, and he applied it. And so that's our, that's our first and that's our primary method of defense and attack. The second thing, so Satan tempts him with, with bread. What, I was trying to think about what, what is this about? Bread is, is food, it's, it's what we feed on. And the question here is, what are you going to feed on primarily? Are you primarily going to feed on food, physical bread, or are you primarily going to get your food from God? In another place, uh, Jesus said, um, uh, he said, I have food that you don't know of. Jesus fed, he got his fuel from God. You know, it, it's when we're tempted there, okay, it's pointless to just turn away to, to blank, to nothing. You can't, it doesn't work. You can't just turn away and just, just leave it there and turn to nothing. You have to replace it. You have to replace it with the right thing. When Satan's tempting you to replace physical fuel for the fuel that you're meant to run on, which is God himself, you can't just turn away from that. You have to turn to the right thing. So when we're in that, in that moment, we turn away from the thing that, that we're being tempted from, uh, that we're temp- tempted by. And you don't just turn away. You actively turn to God. Something that I'm trying to learn, you know, when you're married, sometimes you, you get into um, passionate discussions. <laughs> AKA arguments. And I've learned, you know, God one time said to me, pray. Pray right now. It's so hard to be angry with someone while you're praying. You can't be angry at someone while you're praying with them. 
It's turning away from, you know, in that moment, what I really want to do, the food that I want is anger. I want to be angry because I've got a right. You did something, you hurt my feelings, you did whatever, and I'm angry, and that's the food that I want. <laughs> and so I can't just turn away from that. I, I need to turn to the real food. I need to turn to God. When, when you're tempted uh, in whatever area that you are most tempted in, don't just turn away, turn consciously turn and put God in that place instead. Make him that food. That might mean praying. That might mean picking up your Bible. It might mean going and, and being with another Christian. Because God is the only food that can eternally satisfy us. He's the fuel that we're meant to run on eternally. And nothing else can fill that place. That's why anything else in that place becomes an idol. The second thing that we can learn is to trust God's way rather than our way. And that's a much subtler area of weakness. I wanna, I'm heading towards finishing. This is a much more subtle thing. This can be further along the line in your Christian walk. Because a lot of times we want to do amazing things for God. We want to do incredible you know, uh, things. And we got faith for all sorts of stuff. And we know that God's promised and prophesied this and that. And, and we really want that, but we can get impatient. And in that moment of impatience, it's that, it's that, why don't you take the shortcut? Why don't you go out and get it for yourself? And that just leads to disaster. Sometimes our good motives can lead us to trusting our own plans more than God's. But just because God's told you this is where you're going doesn't mean you can use whatever means necessary to get there. The ends don't justify those means. <laughs> Wait for God's timing. You know, God, God is a, he's a master chef. And God doesn't use microwaves. God knows exactly how long each thing needs to cook until it's ready. Have you ever been trying to cook something and you got a recipe and you don't really, you don't get why that thing has to be done. I don't understand why I got to beat the eggs for 20 minutes. I've done it too. So, uh, you know, skip it. And all of a sudden the cake comes out like, or, you know, whatever you're making doesn't turn out right because you've, you've tried to skip an important step just because you didn't understand it. And the same thing with our lives. God wants to take us to a certain place. He's got a, he's got a certain plan for what he wants to make you into. And you can't skip the steps. You got to go through them because it's a process. It's not instant microwave. It's, it's the, the slow cooker, <laughs> the pressure cooker, it feels like. But understand, you know, obeying him, even when we don't understand, it actually solidifies our identity in him. It makes us stronger in who we are in him. Because the fact is, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, and a disciple follows and obeys a master, not an idea. You can't be a disciple to an idea or a feeling or an action. You can only be a disciple to a master. And when the master commands, the disciple follows. The last thing, which lines up with that third temptation, is don't presume on God's favor. 
Jesus refused to test God. You might think he had every, he could have easily done that, but he refused to test God. God didn't need to prove himself to Jesus. And the fact is, if you're his son, he's given you everything. He's given you, it says, all the riches, all the blessings in the heavenly places. He doesn't owe you anything, actually. But despite that, he's given you everything. And yet, we still ask for more all the time. We don't actually realize what he's given us. And a lot of people, I mean, God forbid any of us to be in this place, but a lot of people maybe even serve God for years, for decades, but expecting in their heart of hearts, they're expecting something to to come in return for that. I'm going to be... Tim Keller tells the story of a missionary who uh, she, she didn't go to college, she didn't do all this stuff, and she wanted to be a missionary, and she was out for years, and, and really, what she wanted in return was a husband. Years and years and years of serving God until she was so frustrated because God hadn't given her a husband yet. How dare you, God? I've done all this stuff for you for years. I've given up this, I've given up that, and you haven't given me a husband. I know plenty of guys for whom it's been, God, I've served you for this number of years. I've given up this privilege. I've lived with a bunch of stinky guys in a dorm room for seven years, and you haven't given me a wife. How dare you, God? I'll have nothing to do with you anymore. Maybe it's not a wife. Maybe, maybe, it's, a, maybe, it's, <laughs> maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a certain ministry, or success. But we expect that thing from God, and when he doesn't give it to us, we, we just abandon it all. And really what that exposes is, is our, where, I, where our identity is, where our motives really are. And that, that last temptation, Satan tries to get Jesus to, to twist the scriptures to his own personal benefit. And that's what can happen to us. You know, none of those things are, they're un, they're, none of them are unreasonable. None of them are bad in themselves. But the fact is, God has already given us everything. And so we don't serve him just to get these little things that we think we want and need. We serve him for what he's already done, for what he's promising us in the future, and for who he is because he deserves our worship. Mother Teresa, I don't have the exact quote, but Mother Teresa She said the true test of worship is if God would take away every single blessing, if he would take away the things that you are are blessed with in your life and strip you down, maybe like Bonhoeffer was, take away your place, your family, your your respect, your your honor, your education, your, your all of the things that make you a big man in in the world's eyes, if he were to strip all that away, would you still serve him? That's the real test of worship. And that's why I read that poem, because here you have Bonhoeffer, an an, an incredible man by, by any measure almost, and he's stripped down to nothing. He's on his way to the gallows, for sure. He's stripped down to nothing, and he asks, who am I? 
And the only thing, the only shred that he's left with, he says, who am I? They mock me, these questions. Whoever I am, you know, oh God, I am thine. I am yours. May that be your root. May that be our root when everything else is stripped away. May we be able to say, I am yours. That is the only thing that makes me who I am. That's my only anchor. Let's pray. Father God, we can't wrap our minds around what it means, what it truly means to be called your son or your daughter. We can't understand what it means to have the gift of you. Father God, would you strip away every other thing that we use to to justify our existence, but you. That when we're in that place of the desert, of temptation and testing, that none of the schemes and tactics of the enemy would be able to shake us because we're rooted and we're found in you. Father God, for each and every heart, I pray tonight you'd open us up and see that that is the only thing we can cling to. You are the only rock that we can hang on to. And I pray that each and every heart would cling to you and be called your son and be welcomed into your blessing. Thank you, Jesus.